Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. I am your host, Lindsay Pritchard-Fox, and today I have Josh Global. Josh uh, recently joined the business development team at Autodesk after 20 years in the industry, and we've known each other since 2019, when we met at the SPAR AEC Next conference where he was my mentor. Um, he was also the mentor to uh, Rebecca, who is now a member of the F9, uh, F9 team. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, we met... Back in 2019, Spar AEC you signed up for uh, to be a mentor in, I think it was one of the opening day classes. And Rebecca and I are like, yeah, let's go to this. And you sat at our table. You were like our assigned mentor. Um, and we've stayed in touch ever since. Mm-hmm. What made you say yes to doing that that day? Um, I was asked. So I was, uh, I was at the conference, um, I was on a couple panels, and uh, last minute I was asked by the organizers if I'd be open to being uh, a mentor. And generally my, you know, my approach to things like this is, um, you know, if it's something I haven't done before, if it's uh, you know, a new experience, a new opportunity, or really there's just no good reason to say no, I say yes. Um, and yeah, as it turned out, it was uh, it was fantastic. You know, we had a conversation with a number of different people, and that's yeah, where you and I met, and uh, have now been in touch for quite a while, and uh, kind of worked on some really fun and interesting stuff together. Yeah, so you and I both love the idea of using uh, digital to improve uh, the construction industry. And what brought you to that Spark conference? Because I know what brought me. Um, but what was, what were the panels? What were the things that you were doing that motivated you to fly out to Anaheim that year? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's kind of a funny story. So I wound up being there as a replacement speaker for, um, a woman who had worked at the company that I was at at the time, uh, CW Keller and Associates. And, um, between, submitting to present work that the company was doing and when the conference happened uh she moved on to a new job and so i wound up kind of just sitting in as her replacement um but it was a fantastic opportunity so i was there to kind of talk about work that the company was doing especially around kind of technology and how we were using some kind of advanced uh software and hardware in a unique application for construction but the company also had a large, uh, very unusual residential project going on at the time in, uh, in Southern California. So it also gave me an opportunity to go out uh, and check out the site and see how the work was coming along. Uh, it was a huge concrete structure. So it was a lot of... Yeah, it's like a 50,000 square foot private residence. Um, and it, it kind of looked like, uh, um, you know, what a stereotypical like flying saucer might look like if it was kind of buried you know, mostly underground and you were just kind of seeing the top dome part of it. And so the company I was with was doing the formwork for the really kind of uh, complex parts of those pores, a lot of doubly curved geometry. 
not an easy, not an easy job at all. Um, and being out there, like the, I think what was interesting about getting to know you is that you're just kind of the, got this thirst and lifelong um, need to get more knowledge in your, in your uh, stuff into your brain. Um, so what was it that like drove you to the industry? What is some like background of like your experience? Because I, I you know, I've read your bio, you've got just a, such a diverse uh, experience. Yeah, so uh, I guess kind of, um, yeah, running through my background. So I started off, uh, my undergrad degree is in architecture. Uh, so I got a bachelor's of architecture degree, then came out of school and went into practice. And this was um, 1999, 2000. So this is prior to BIM, um, you know, being kind of a, a well-known term. Uh, this was, you know, before Revit, you know, was kind of dominating the market. Um, so most companies were still, you know, doing everything 2D and drafting. And so it was a combination of both wanting to understand why and how things were built the way they were, um, which really kind of drove me towards wanting to work in 3D. And then just frustration with the way the technology was used in the architecture industry. Um, I just, I, I, from a very early time, could not imagine myself spending most of my time trying to fix plans and sections and elevations, even just to get lines to kind of meet at corners and, you know, for each of those, uh, you know, different aspects of a project to actually be in sync with each other. Uh, so that led me to kind of like trying to dig in and learn more about, you know, at the time, uh, this kind of popularization of things called parametrics and algorithms. And I, I didn't know exactly what those were. So I started going to, you know, different conferences and talks just got super interested in that technology and decided to, uh, after eight years uh, in practicing architecture, go back to school and kind of, initially I thought I would just become a real tech whiz with you know this, this kind of new software. Uh, so I went um, back to school to study computational design. And uh, within those two years, I quickly got caught up in kind of the sociology and the ethnography of the history of the development of CAD tools and was just fascinated by the fact that even though the technology was changing so rapidly, most people's expectations about what it could do and what it should do for the industry stayed exactly the same. Um, so, you know, that, that just kind of blew my mind and really has set the course since then for, I think, uh, the foundation of everything that I kind of do in the way that I think about things. Um, but then after that, I came out, I went into the engineering construction side. Um, I wound up focusing on uh, generally kind of feature elements for projects. Um, usually they were either large or geometrically complex or both uh, and really employing, you know, computational techniques to realize those projects. Spent 12 years doing that. And then last summer uh, had the opportunity to kind of uh, take a new career path and move over to the technology side. And I joined uh, Autodesk. Um, and now I, I work with a small business development team there, trying to work with other companies and help them understand certain aspects of computational design and industrialized construction. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about all the time and, and how to apply that. The part where you go back in history and you start analyzing um, what the relationship with technology is uh, in the industry, I actually did something similar with uh, general contractors. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know the origin of general contracting and how the systems worked 
in the 1900s and um, understanding where the psychology was in the 1900s and then using that perspective to say, I don't think that we're actually demanding enough out of this industry, considering that our means and methods are not that far removed from what we were doing in the 19th book. We can go back farther. Um, But very specifically um, to go in and look at the relationship with, uh, you know, digital and technology. Um, What were some takeaways uh, from that investigation? Yeah, so the thing that jumped out at me was um, there was uh, a, a book that was uh, kind of compiled and edit- edited by Nicholas Negroponte in the 1960s. And Nicholas Negroponte was at the MIT Media Lab. Um, he's more recently well, he was well known for a project he tried to launch the One Laptop Per Child project. Um, but what he did was he, he collected essays from a number of different practitioners in the 1960s about their reflections on CAD tools because CAD kind of came into being in um, the the late 1940s, early 1950s. So this is kind of like 10, 15 years since CAD was just introduced. And the people reflecting on it wrote these incredible essays that there was one line which talked about the fact that um, the expectation was that this technology would take care of a lot of the kind of um, redundant uh, and repetitive tasks and free up designers, giving them more time to design. And then in 2008, there was a handbook for some, you know, a, a new release of some technology. And it almost said the exact same thing. It said, this software will free up designers from the repetitive tasks giving you more time to design. And what blew my mind is you're talking about like 50 years of technology development and the expectations of this new software release were already disproved 50 years ago. And so you could say, well, the technology is totally different and now it can do all this stuff. So now it actually will live up to those expectations. But that's kind of what, what caught my eye. And I was just like, something, something is strange about this. You know, if in 50 years of development of the technology, you know, it has not figured out how to take care of the repetitive tasks and free up more time to design, then I kind of doubt this one somehow flipped the switch on that. You know, and that really kind of led me into like, well, what, you know, what is the difference between how the technology works, what it does, and what people actually think it should do? And that kind of tied in with things like, you know, CAD is not drafting, but the metaphor was very quickly adopted. And even Ivan Sutherland, who basically created Sketchpad, the first kind of man-machine graphical interface that basically, you know, became kind of known as CAD was very, very clear about pointing out the difference between doing something on the computer and hand drafting. And yet that seemed to have been forgotten. So people were like, well, you know, no, I'm clicking a button and I'm drafting on the computer. It's not, you know, it's like a digital version of drafting by hand. And they're so very, very different. And what it comes down to is data constructs, right? I mean, when you're working with a computer, you are building data constructs. And so data is at the center of what you were doing. It is not about the graphics. The graphics are a view 
a graphical representation of certain aspects of that data. But I think that was a huge part of the problem is the metaphor and just the way people came to understand even how to use the tool and what to expect from it. So if you expect it to be a digital version of a pencil, I think you're, you know, you're kind of going to go in a very strange direction. And then you're going to say, well, why isn't this taking care of repetitive tasks? Well, because the technology itself places demands on how you use it in order to structure the data in an appropriate way to then get certain end results, which can be really valuable and beneficial. And this is what, you know, you and I have talked about is this is where, you know, we both agree that there's so much more you could do because the data is sitting there if you actually take advantage of it. But if you look at this stuff as basically just a way to produce graphics, right? So a better way to, to produce drawings, then yeah, you're not gonna think about the data. You're not gonna think about like, why is it so important to carry out all these other steps? So part of the problem with expectations, I think, is that um, yes, it will take, you know, this could take care of some repetitive tasks that you did before, but it's going to demand other tasks of you in order to kind of create the structured data in a way that can then start to be used downstream and really see efficiencies in other parts of the industry. So I think it's, honestly, I think it's more a problem of expectations than it's a technology problem. But it seems that in my experience, people often very quickly blame the technology. Well, yes, because they're, the mindset is, so I'm looking at it not as a tool, but a process. And yeah. you can, you know, do a whole lot of research. It's not, I'm not, I'm not the origin of that type of mentality. Um, I did get there and then went hunting to have it validated. That's why I ended up at the SPAR EC Next conference because I had um, Greg Hale, who's been on the show, uh, was in a similar state, you know, structural engineer background, wanting to understand not just how to do the job more efficiently, but how you can really stretch the technology to create a, a, a new process around what we're doing. And you can get it. Spar AC next was the first time that I saw um, a real stretch into an ecosystem of digital tools. That was where laser scanning and how they could test the viability of the Harvard football stadium, how far the cracks were spreading because they had basically scans that were doing this uh, analysis ongoing and and actually looking at these structures and saying where are they failing how can we uh, reinforce them um, is it a continual fail or is it something that just settled and seeing those realities and really leveraging technology to address those big questions that we as humans individually are going to struggle with what are the tools that are going to make us better at what we do um, and that is you've gone You've gone like from, uh, you know, let's let's start our architectural program at Cornell into like, let's go big thinking. And I think every time you and I have a conversation, it's about how much bigger can we think about all of this? Right. But what were the what were some of the roadblocks from where like you were in school and then moving into the industry, knowing that your thought process wasn't, you know, you aren't necessarily alone in the way you're thinking, but it may have been, was it difficult to find people that were like-minded that could kind of bolster your pathway? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's, you know, it's circumstantial as much as anything else, you know, um, luck has a lot to do with it. Um, recognizing, you know, opportunities, being in the right place at the right time, which often I think I wasn't. Um, 
So I, I think that has a ton to do with it. But yeah, you know, it was it was kind of curiosity. It was a certain stubbornness about things. Um, you know, uh, again, in the early days when I started, uh, so I started, you know, learning 3D modeling in FormZ, um, which, you know, was good for, um, you know, producing 3D models and doing renderings, but it wasn't by any means a BIM tool, which means, you know, the more geometry you put into it, um, the bigger the files got, um, the bigger polygon counts, the, the harder the renderings were. But I wanted to build everything in 3D exactly the way it was being built on site, because especially as a young practitioner, I wanted to understand why things were built the way they were. And why was there this kind of contention between the drawings that I was being asked to produce at an architecture firm and the way contractors were actually building things and saying, you know, your drawings don't help. Um, that's not how we build. So I just wanted to understand that. Um, and then once I got into 3D modeling, it was like, well, I can, I can get this, right? Like, this makes sense. We are trying to construct something, you know, in three dimensions. Why are we, why is everything else done in two dimensions? Why is everything drawn in two dimensions when it's a three-dimensional thing? You know, which then led to the, you know, kind of the realization or the reflection on the fact that um, plans, sections, those are orthographic projections of three-dimensional spaces. So again, why am I not just cutting plans out of a 3D model and sections and elevations? Why am I actually drawing these separately and inevitably getting it wrong and missing things or having things not totally line up? Like all of those frustrations, I just was like, this is bizarre. Why is this how the industry works? You know, I was like, well, because, you know, the, you can't, you, you can't 3D model everything, you know, the, it just, again, the files get too big. It's, it's, you know, we can't cut plans and sections from it. You can't make drawings from it. And I think that's obviously where, you know, the industry, you know, probably a lot of other people were seeing things the same way. The industry started to address that. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of a, a huge motivating factor was just uh, the frustration with the way things were done and just wanting to figure out like, well, why can't it be done differently? And then, yeah, just, you know, it took a while to kind of find certain people who were of the same mindset because, I think a lot of times in practice too, it's like, there's so much just day to day you have to deal with. It's hard to like, you know, if you want to kick back from your desk and be like, Hey, let's take the next half hour and just think big when you're on a deadline to get a set out. It's like, you know, especially as a young practitioner, I don't know how many, how many managers or bosses are going to be uh, really into that. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me spend more time on this project than we actually, uh, I would quote it. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, uh, right. I'm not working enough hours in architecture. So let me, you know, put some more time into this, but you know, with, without that, without stepping back and reflecting on things, I think that's where, you know, things just get ingrained. They're just done that way because, you know, people feel like it's, well, it's so busy. I don't have the time, right? It's that catch 22 where you're like, like you said, here's a process that could actually save you time, but it's going to take you a bunch of time to actually learn that and test it and get it right until you can see those efficiencies. So you're actually going to lose productivity first before you get better. And that's really hard for people who are kind of under deadlines and, you know, especially in a relatively low margin industry where you're like, well, we can't afford to do that. We can't afford to spend the time to actually improve our margins. And, you know, I, I experienced that throughout my 20 year professional career you know, before uh, kind of moving over to the tech side is that 
that was everywhere. Even companies I worked for that said they were kind of advanced and cutting edge. Same, same issues, same concerns. Forged out on your own um, for a period of time in like, oh, nine. Shocking. Um, What was, what were, what was that period of your life like? And what did you learn from, from that experience? So there are a couple of things. One is, yeah, it was kind of, uh, I was, um, I think I was a victim for, for, uh, in the 08 recession, along with a lot of other people. So it, you know, timing being what it was, I came out of grad school in 08, um, and, uh, got a job just in time for the recession to set in. So, you know, as happens with a lot of companies last in first out kind of a thing, um, when there are cutbacks, so it was a, you know, it was a, it was a side hustle. I was kind of trying to figure out what I could do, where I could add value, um, and you know, did that for a while while I was kind of trying to get, you know, back on my feet and find something else. Um, but one of the things that actually came out of that, one of the great experiences was I had an opportunity to do this solo project, um, which was this kind of obscure little thing. It was basically an array of mirrors outside of. Um, a window in a in a house in New York City, uh, and it was a wealthy client, and it kind of came through some some friends of mine who had done some HVAC work for this client, and they just wanted to block the view out their window and and like see the sky because it was kind of at the bottom of a, a window well. And what was great about that is I decided to use that as an experiment to see if I could design, fabricate, and build the entire thing myself. Um, and this was, you know, there's I think still there's there's an ongoing discussion sometimes about the idea of the master builder right returning you know can technology uh bring back this mythical master builder um and i figured you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna put my money where my mouth is like i'm gonna try it and it was probably the one of the best and worst professional experiences of my life the best because i learned so much um and the worst because it was so painfully humbling and I, you know, again, this was, you know, part of kind of a, a side hustle. Um, I was recently married. I, we had a, a newborn at the time. So this was like a night and weekends thing. And, uh, you know, I threw everything into it, but that took its toll. But um, yeah, I really, I really learned a lot about why things are built the way they are, the struggles of trying to kind of connect design information to how you can actually fabricate and build things, all the struggles of actually getting something built, um, just keeping track of all the information and the parts and the pieces. So it was, it was amazing. And I, it really became a touchstone for me. Um, but I also, you know, I bid the project myself and it was a terrible bid. I barely managed to break even on material cost alone. So I probably spent, I would say 500 hours of uh, my time on that, that, you know, I got nothing in return for in terms of uh, money uh, payment. (laughs) You got lots of learning lessons. Incredible learning experience that I would not necessarily recommend. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a great point. So um, you're on the show, you have this like very extensive and um, kind of eclectic experience. And so if you're, through speaking to some, some of the folks that are running these design firms or architectural space, um, where are you seeing uh, opportunity and what, you know, what's on the horizon for they, uh, so they could be prepared for those opportunities? 
for like young professionals? Young professionals, um, firms that are going to need to um, either pivot, evolve, stretch. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of firms, when I first started in the industry in, um, I would say 2016, I did some local research and that's where I called the 30 firms and said, I'm learning Revit and I would like to use it for residential. And that's where I got 30 no's with 30 yeah. AIA referral list firms. And they said, nobody needs this technology, especially yeah. in residential. Uh, you might get, you know, might luck out if you call like some of the commercial firms. And uh, I did not accept that as, as reasonable. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think you, I think you nailed it right there is if something logically makes sense to you, right. Or you've got, you just have this kind of like this itch about something is, you know, kind of follow it as best you can. And I mean, I, you know, I am very much a pragmatist um, with respect to the fact that I, I really bristle at the whole follow your passion thing. Um, you know, most people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. Um, and I did, right? Privilege. <laughs> yeah. Like you've got to, like, you've got to make it day to day. Um, you got to figure out how to, you know, do what you want. If you're, you know, if you've got a full-time job, which is supporting you then to like try to come home at the end of the day and say, I'm just going to like drill into something else. Like, yeah, if you, you know, there are going to be times in people's lives where they maybe have the opportunity or the ability to do that, or even the energy to do it. And there's going to be times where you don't. Um, but I think to the extent that you can, yeah, like if you, you know, if something interests you, um, dig into it a little bit, kind of see where it goes. Um, try something. I mean, I, you know, I'm also a big believer in just don't overthink things. You know, it's kind of like you have an idea, find some small way to test that. And I don't know, start a process and just kind of see where it goes. And don't, you know, don't freak out if you just like you run out of energy and you put it on hold for six months or a year, right? Something might come along, which will spark the interest again. But, you know, one of the things I love is like the conversations that we have. Um, I just love talking about this stuff. I mean, you know, I don't, I, you know, again, I've, I've had plenty of experience. I don't so strongly feel the need that I have to personally and directly do a lot of this work now. I really like talking to people. I really like helping people like you think big and think through, okay, you know, I have this idea, but I would need this. I would need this. I would need this as opposed to like, no, you wouldn't just here. What if you, what if you try this? What if you contact this person? What if you try outsourcing this or who do you know who could do this? Or who do I know who I could help you out with? And, you know, I think again, just, yeah, having those conversations, uh, showing up at conferences or lectures and, maybe just getting into conversation with someone like, you know, it turns into things like this, which is just for me, I get so much excitement and I just feel so good about anything I can do that helps others succeed and realize things. Um, you know, the last thing I was doing before I joined Autodesk was I was running this, this uh, engineering department at this company. And even though for years I had spent my time and really developed um a lot of expertise in doing and implementing computational design, I stepped back and I found so much more enjoyment in teaching and helping my team grow and just creating the space for, you know, younger people on the team who had, who were hungry and had the energy to succeed, you know, guiding them, coaching them, um, 
So that to me was fantastic. You know, it was something I felt like I really lacked in a large part of my career. And I'm just finding so much more enjoyment in being able to do that now. So I think that's the thing is you have conversations, you know, you, you might stumble across those people who are just really excited about helping other people, even if it's just in terms of a thought process or bouncing ideas. Well, I'm finding you and finding so many of like, even um, Alex and Lance, just finding um, industry, uh, people in the industry that had that longevity that could blend uh, that credibility and could reinforce, I just 30 no's from the AIA referral list. Yeah. Like, yeah. are they right? And you, you do have to stretch yourself. You do have to go find, go find that, yes, but also um, find it in a way that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be all in at once and a big scary jump. I mean, I think that was kind of your you had gone into this uh, kind of entrepreneurial mode in 09 and it was great. You learned a lot, but you didn't necessarily stay there. So now that it doesn't need that permanence for you to find, I don't want to speak for you, but like to find that side of validation or, you know, fulfilling some passion. Yeah. I mean, an important thing for me was to kind of get over myself and stop feeling like I had to be the superstar or that I wanted to be the superstar. You know, if those opportunities come along, great. But maybe you do that for a little while and then you go into some other mode. I think you're absolutely right is I definitely agree with the fact that you kind of take things as they come. And and again, you know, kind of goes back to that original thing I discovered. If you get into these expectation modes, it's really those are blinders, right? It's like, no, this is the goal. This is the process. If you're not constantly reflecting on what's happening, is this making me happy? Do I enjoy what I'm doing? Like, I don't know that you always have options. I mean, I got stuck in a job for six years that I couldn't stand, but I focused on the work, you know, and and where I could kind of at least be learning and, and kind of pushing myself a little bit. But part of it was just like, you know, keeping my head up, trying to look around for, okay, well, what, you know, what might be next? And that was a long time to like, be in a rough situation, but that happens, you know, it's like, just cause you wake up one day and you're like, no, I'm not enjoying this. Not everyone has the luxury to be like, all right, I quit because I did that too. Yeah. I quit a job I didn't like. And then that was even worse um, <laughs> because I had no income. I couldn't find another job for a while. Like it is, you know, I very much have taken the kind of crash and burn approach to a lot of my career. Um, and it is hard. I sit, you know, People are like, if you don't like what you're doing, find something else. Like that, that's nice. How nice. Like, you know, it, but I, I mean, I, yeah, I certainly wouldn't recommend to anyone to just like quit without having something else lined up or know what you're going to do. Cause that can be, it can be rough. I mean, maybe that's what people want to do and you know, more power to you. But I, I mean, from my personal experience, man, I would not do that again. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you've taken all of those hard lessons, good, bad, um, and that you took some time to be on the show with us today. Um, and as we know, uh, we are on YouTube, um, and you can subscribe for your chance to win Inside the Firm merch. Um, please leave a five-star review. It really does help us reach a broader audience. And uh, if you are looking to find more Inside the Firm content, follow us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Inside the Firm or on Instagram at I. TF podcast. And Josh, if, thank you so much for being on. I'm sure people are going to try and find you on LinkedIn um, just to get this kind of really unique uh, perspective. And I just wanted to thank you for the time. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, and if people do want to reach out, that would be great. Just uh, maybe make a mention of, of you know, hearing it on, on, on this podcast so I, I know uh, where the connection's coming from. Yeah, we can get you back on too. We'll get enough like write-ins like, what does Josh say about this? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you.